We're the kids from Clonmara, and you're listening to WCBM FM Emma. Hi, this is Chris from Bell and Sebastian, and you're listening to WCBN on 88.3 FM in Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. This is the Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, that was hooray for the riffraff. Uh, starting us off this afternoon, we're live in the studio. It's Thursday, August sixteenth, two thousand eighteen, and uh, we have Abby May Otis with us. Thank you for being here, Abby. Hi. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much. So excited you could join. Um, I'm going to read um, a little bit about Abby and your background um, to kind of start off mm-hmm. our hour together. Um, Abby May Otis is a writer, a teaching artist, a storyteller, and a fire starter raised in the woods of North Carolina. She loves people and art forms on the margins. She studied at the Missioner Center for Writers in Austin, Texas, and at the Clarion West Writers Workshop, and now teaches at Oberlin College in Ohio. Her stories have recently appeared in journals including Tin House, Story Quarterly, Barrel House, and Tor.com. Thanks for being here, Abby. Thank you so much. Your first book is out. Pleasure to sit down. Yes. Your first book is Alien Virus. First book. Sorry, first book. (laughs) Let me say the title clearly so our listeners can hear Alien Virus Love Disaster. And it is short stories. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Would you like to sort of introduce the book for us, for listeners who haven't Mm -hmm. had a chance to pick it up yet? It's, It's a story collection. It's collecting uh, things that I've read, uh, things that I've written over a long period of time. So some of them feel more distant and more close. Um, But it is, I would characterize it as science fiction and speculative fiction um, and some some weirdness and body horror. I think it's (laughs) it's very interested in questions of of bodies and transformation and uh, the the people and the places that get left out of like the bigger mainstream science fiction narratives of the future. Um, I mm-hmm. think I, I look to people on the margins and I look to the stories that tend to fall, fall through the cracks or, or like where I feel the most at home and where I find the most heart to write about. Um, and, and there's a lot of people transforming into animals and people seeking uh, agency and power for themselves in difficult situations and um, and strange ways and having weird things happen to them and and often failing I think at, at 
like uh, gaining agency in the way that they want to. Um, I I think I'm I'm interested in all of the sort of sci-fi tropes of virtual reality and mm -hmm. aliens and space travel, um, and also fantastical things like uh, ghosts and strange creatures. And you pack and, a lot into this book, basically. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's happening. what everyone's been telling me, and I I don't think I think about it that way although i i think that i'm i have a very short attention span and uh -huh. i tend to um be trying to entertain myself when i'm writing and figure if i can keep myself from being bored then maybe that will work for other people also and so i i think i bounce around to a lot mm -hmm. of subjects and i tend to uh collect and collage things together and that results in a lot of different elements um yeah. getting smashed into the the strange cases that stories are. How do you are. make those choices? Because I think you do have a lot of just incredible juxtapositions of things. Mm -hmm. Some of the, if I can use your word, weird things mm -hmm. that you, oh, yeah. <laughs> you seem yeah. to fully embrace uh, the weirdness of, of your fiction. Um, how do you make those choices um, of, of what goes together? Because that could I, not work. Like in, I can see some writers not pulling that off it definitely could not yeah. work I, it's, it's i'd never working. know if it's going to work <laughs> it's working in your book um, um but how do you make it work i i i think that making stories and making narratives is for me more about or less about the end product and more about how i move through the world and how i process uh, things on the news and things that are happening to me and things that are happening to my friends and people in my communities and and then also like strange YouTube videos that I encounter like things ephemera that that floats in through the internet and media and mm -hmm. a lot of the stories I think tend to be like I've I'm amassing a certain amount of experiences and images that have caught my interest and like I, I have a carrying basket for those and once the basket mm -hmm. is full then I'm like okay well, how do I make the things in here into a story all the things you've seen and experienced and, yeah and they yeah. and maybe they're more like temporally related because I've collected them all at the same time right. <laughs> and not really related that's to why each they're other. related yeah yeah and, but brain. I'm like what what is like the interesting tension between these things or what are relationships mm -hmm. that I can pull out and make them uh, feel emotionally interesting also. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm never sure if it's going to work, actually. I, I think a lot of the time I my my writing process is like, let me see how much I can get away with and maybe someone will stop me. <laughs> and sometimes people stop me. Who and, stops you? <laughs> um, writing is such a solitary process that I'm wondering if you're... It is. Well, I've I've been in, in school and in writing workshops for mm -hmm. a long time. And I, I think all but maybe one or two of these stories were, were written either when I was an undergrad or when I was in grad school. Um, and... But then even things I, I wrote after that, I, I would send to my editors and mm -hmm. be like, maybe they will say, no, you can't <laughs> do this. Um, and for this book, they they didn't, they never said that to me. And so. No, they didn't. I, it, things happened then. Yeah. So you, I was going to ask you 
how you feel about that when an editor or a trusted reader or somebody that you've shown your work to says like, wait a minute, an- another alien or wait, like mm-hmm. if, if anybody puts the brakes on it. Um, I also sometimes don't listen happen. to people when they yeah. say that. I think that that's a great sign. Like it's so brave to send your work out and to let other people read it. And then it's even braver to like take that feedback and sometimes say like, okay, point taken, but actually this mm-hmm. is on purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, I, um, I've, been telling my students a lot that a lot of the process of workshopping and having writing community and and writing and editing and the whole the whole layered process of making stories is is about learning to filter feedback and mm-hmm. that I think workshops can teach you as much about trusting yourself and your own instincts as they can about uh, taking in the opinions of other people and yeah. that sometimes that's more important. Yeah, it is. And I also, I really like short stories as a form because they are inherently short and fleeting. And so often I'm trying a certain set of things in one. And if it doesn't work there, then I move on to the next one. Well, they're experimental in a way. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I know that there are writers who think of the short story as this, it's like, opportunity to make like perfectly formed perfectly contained things that are like more under your control than mm-hmm. a novel or a, a long work is or can be um i don't feel that way about the stories in here i think they're, they're experimental and they're mm-hmm. like fragments of things and kind of jagged and incomplete feeling to me a lot mm-hmm. of the time but i i like them because they can be be sharp and fragmented that way yeah how do you if you if you're writing stories whose end goal um or whose end form is sharp and jagged and weird like mm-hmm. how how do you know when it's done how do you know when it's time to turn it in because mm. like um, a first draft could also be considered sometimes jagged and wild yeah but these are not first drafts yeah in this this collection no. Um, I think like uh, linearly and looking at a story structure from beginning to end, I really like endings. And mm-hmm. I like I think the things that I loved reading the most when I was growing up and, and then continuing to read contemporary authors and like forming uh my understanding of like what spoke to me in writing was I, I really love endings that like give you that gut punch feeling mm-hmm. um, and endings that kind of crescendo into something. And often that's the first thing I think of with a story is like how, right. how I want it to end mm-hmm. or like an, a final image that is exciting to me to like leave people with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have to figure out how to write my way up to that. Um, so that kind of forms a inherent container for the thing because I yeah. have a stopping point. You have a goal. So know, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, know when I get to the goal. Um, and then sometimes I get to the goal and it's not the right ending anymore mm-hmm. and it goes away. Um, but in terms of drafts and like mm-hmm. going over things, um, I think I, I have goals in terms of the emotional 
register that I want the story to move through. And I have the uh, more perfect image in my head always, the, the ideal thing that I'm mm -hmm. trying to work towards and never never quite attaining. But like, I think of drafts as, as layering and like slowly... I guess layering Getting and there. excavating and yeah. like slowly working your way towards <laughs> that. Um, and then I also get bored and want to move on to another <laughs> thing. And, and so some of that is just like, eventually I'm ready to not be working on something. Um, and with a lot of these stories that uh, go, the, some of them are, are written like many years ago or the first drafts came from then. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think of them very much as like markers of an earlier place that I was in as a writer. And so it, like after a certain amount of time, it feels like I couldn't go back and revise something more because right. it's, it's of that time period. Right. You finished it and, and it yeah. demonstrates who you were then as a writer. And, yeah. And I, yeah. I could go and revise it and change it but it would become something different. It wouldn't become like an improved version of right. that. Thing. Sometimes you have to leave things behind. Yeah. yeah. Yes, definitely. <laughs> We're talking to Abby May Otis on the Living Writer Show. She is author most recently of Alien Virus Love Disaster. It's a collection of short stories. Um, and we are glad you're here. Thank you. You are appearing at Literati Bookstore tonight? Yes, that's right. It's um, If listeners are hearing this live on Thursday, August 16th, 2018... You'll be at Literati at seven tonight. At seven, that's right. That's great, and you'll you'll read some of the stories. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm reading, and then I have uh, an old friend who I went to undergrad with, who is facilitating a conversation. Also, so oh, we'll nice. get to talk. Oh, okay. I believe he's in the MFA program here here at, at Michigan Ann Arbor right now. Yeah, very good. So I'm I'm excited about that. Very good. Um, so people in Ann Arbor should check that out tonight. Um, I wanted to ask you, you've referenced a few times um, when you wrote the stories, and I feel like when I was reading um, the collection, I there were a few moments where I felt like the stories were so timely. I, the things about uh, the, the sort of government control and cruelty, which feels like uh, something everyone is considering now in, in America and beyond, um, which feels extremely timely. So I wondered if mm -hmm. that... Uh, thread of thinking um, is one that was in the stories even that you were writing years ago um, or or if you wanted to sort of talk about when all these stories mm -hmm. came together I was about to say that I, I'm glad they feel timely but I'm I'm kind of not glad about yeah, that because well, I think the things the things that make them feel timely it's are terrifying yeah, yeah. terrifying and, and very very timely. violent and destructive to people's lives um I'm, I'm glad that it feels like they're speaking to some of that, mm -hmm. though. Um, and But they, it sounds like they weren't necessarily developed in response to current events. Not to current events, but I, I think to questions of similarly people being disempowered um, mm -hmm. or marginalized or seeking home and seeking a sense of belonging and sort of the, the terrible things that happen when people are deprived of that and also the terrible things that people will do in seeking that. Um, and 
I think uh, the, the earliest ones in here are like, there's one called, I'm sorry, your daughter got eaten by a cougar. It's a menacing uh, title, yeah. you have to admit. <laughs> um, and and, and I, I had someone say that, that the title feels like kind of a joke, and then the story mm. is like not a joke, and I, I was, I'm curious about like whether that lines up. Um, but that was, one of, that was one of the earlier ones. Moon Kids came very early. That's about uh, mm-hmm. kids, kids whose families live on the moon who get kicked out of the like corporatized moon society <laughs> and have to come back and live on Earth. Yes, tell about what they have to do. I found that mm. fascinating. Um, they well on on they come here on the moon. They're sort of like tech workers, I think, mm-hmm. or like working on uh, knowledge production labor. And if they're not smart enough to do that, then they get kicked off. And they come, and the particular kids in the story uh, find their way to a, a beach town, um, and and spend their lives sort of thinking, spending time. In, in a tourist town and around the beach and the ocean and thinking about like all of the ways that the the moon which they just think of as a place that's home um, has like different cultural meanings to people on earth and different meanings for uh, geology and moving the ocean and just like living living in this world where the thing that was their home means something very different um, and trying to cope with that and not not really having the tools to cope with that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a question before that, and I totally forget. I think I you going. answered all the questions, where, but it was like, where do these? Where do they come from? Um, yeah. Or no, that they were early stories, um, and I, I think some of them were like, I was going through a, a political awakening, and and like. Uh, radicalizing during <laughs> during college and and thinking a lot about inequality and like what what justice means and what what activism means um and processing that through creating narratives and so some of them feel like a little politically naive at at this point in well, my life. Um, it, it's but, what you said before. It's sort of a reflection. Right, of the right. Time. But they're they're a reflection of that place that I was in, and and I think like the the political conversations that are being had today are are not because the world is so significantly different from what it was ten years ago. But I mm-hmm. think um, people's awareness is in a different place, and and sort of the it's entirely different. Yeah, yeah, and the the levels of what is mainstream have shifted. Absolutely true. I think we're going to do a song break. Mm-hmm. Have a, a quick break uh, with the next song that you chose for our hour here on Living Writers. Um, it's the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Thanks for joining us, Abby May Otis. Meet me in outer space. We could spend the night. Take me. 
tip mirrors tell me nothing about myself I've been complacent with the stories and the lies you tell my heart so was Stellar uh, by Jamila Woods. And this is the Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. I'm Amanda Yuli, hosting today uh, with our guest, Abby May Otis, author of Alien Virus Love Disaster. And um, we were talking before the break about kind of where your stories come from. Your, your short story collection is... Um, did you describe it as science fiction? Yes. I was starting to, and then I thought I should ask you if that feels right to you it it does um although i love debates about genre labels too so we're gonna talk about go that, into that we're a lot. definitely gonna talk mm-hmm. about that um but in your collection i mean you, you were talking about uh or before the break you were talking about sort of where they come from and sort of your your political sense of yourself and your opinions mm-hmm. um and i was wondering if you could speak to whether you see these stories as um particularly feminist or otherwise activist in some way. Mm. Um, I I feel like I was feeling that when I was reading some of the stories, but Mm -hmm. I, I would love your take on, on that. The short answer is yes. Okay. And how? Uh, Because I couldn't put my finger on it. Yeah. Is well, and I am hesitant and skeptical about Mm -hmm. a lot of political writing because I, think um a lot of things that take on that label for themselves uh do so in a kind of didactic way and like right. simplifying way or or like satirizing way right. or allegorical i'm not against satire um but then i also think that there there's a lot of things where who get a like political label applied to them mm-hmm. and that's usually because uh, they are illuminating a politic that is different from the one that is normalized that we like swim in mm-hmm. every day and don't don't notice the water. Um, and and so I, I think all all writing has has a politic to it and is political right. in some sense. And right. some things more deliberately shift away from the norm than others. And I think sometimes it's the lens through the author's viewpoint. Right? It could be mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's not. An explicit thing, but it's how you see the world, and therefore it's how yeah, and your characters. And I'm a person of color, and a mixed race person, and a queer person, and so those are, I think the the stories and the people and the bodies that I'm interested in having show up in mm-hmm. the things that I write, um, and and. And so I think I don't, I'm wary of like political or feminist labels in mm-hmm. that are like seeking to impart a lesson. And, mm-hmm. and also I, I keep thinking I'm, I'm afraid of allegory because I think like allegories that feel like they have a one-to-one correspondence between yeah. the science fictional world that's created and the real world are like, there's, there's not room for you as a reader to like generate your own emotional attachment to right. that if you're just sort of connecting the dots between things. Um, but I do want to generate worlds that 
speak to our present uh, situation and and serve to defamiliarize or estrange us from that a little bit and maybe convey the discomfort and loss and heartbreak that I think people who are who are displaced or who are, are uh, further away from, from dominant culture feel. Um, and what was I saying there? Well, I just wanted to sort of pick up on one of the things you said earlier, yeah. which was um, the phrase emotionally interesting. Did I have that correctly? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which I think is, is you don't always hear that when you are talking about science fiction stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they tend to be more sensational or uh, creepy or, you know, things like that. But I think that um, the sense that your work is very... Um, for me, hard to define in, as a genre thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it really reflects that you have developed emotionally interesting situations and characters um, in a very surreal world. Mm-hmm. So how do you, I mean, I, I, how do you do that? Because for a lot of readers, you read something that has these science fiction kind of elements in it. And you think, re- readers think of it right away in a certain way. And they don't necessarily think about that emotional investment. Yeah, and and I think I think it is unfortunate that that is the perception of science fiction in general, and I think that's maybe sort of the perception from the like very most commercial front or like edge of the genre. Because mm-hmm. um, when I go back and read a lot of the older sixties, seventies, eighties, like new wave. Um, science fiction who were like very very specifically and loyally in the genre mm-hmm. writers um, I think there's a tremendous amount of like working through uh, people's emotional existence and like what it means to be human and looking at those larger than like what it means premises. to be human exactly right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, and and those those were like I don't know Philip K. Dick and, and Samuel Delaney and um, Ursula Quinn and all of those people were like who I was Damon Knight and going going back to like golden age things. Um, Judith Merrill. Those were who I was reading like when I was mm-hmm. a kid and I, those were like the first stories that made me feel something and made me feel wonder or sadness for people, mm-hmm. um, for the characters. And that that was when I started writing when I was like in middle school writing stories like that was still what I was trying to capture. Um, and, and I, I still feel that. And I, you know, I, I read incredibly widely now and I don't, I don't feel like an allegiance to genre things as much. And I, I feel like, um, emotional impact is as important to me as, ideas or I don't think of those as extricable from each no, other. They're not separate things. Yeah. And so I was in Columbus last night and we ended up talking a lot about like what in a story can provide grounding versus what provides like expansion or, or elevation. Um, and, and I think from, for me, like the relationships between characters and 
particularly often the relationships between family members and siblings and parents and children um, are like the the grounding element mm-hmm. when I write. Um, There's a lot of sibling stuff I mm-hmm, saw in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of kind of uh, dysfunctional and weird family relationships. Yes. <laughs> and I, 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 I think I, I have a very solid, loving relationship with my two parents and my brother, and we're like a very close family unit. Yeah. Um, and so someone was making me think last night, like, why? Why do I do that then? Why are these um, difficult sibling relationships? Or, yeah, and I, I think like, like, there's something about my experiences with family that make those relationships hold a lot of power, and like they yeah. they can hold a lot of weight to ground a story in, um, and also a lot of tragedy when they are torn apart or deformed right. somehow. Um, and it's an automatic understanding for anyone who has a sibling, right? Yeah. What that is, what yeah. that relationship is. <clears throat> um, yeah. And that's, I, I think that's like a very, because everyone has some sort of relationships with their family and some sort of like, uh, emotional energy mm-hmm. encoded in those. I think that's a pretty easy way when you're writing something for your readers to like, to latch onto and to hold on to when then a story becomes very strange and weird and in, mm-hmm. in space or they <laughs> fall down the kid's mouth or whatever, yeah. whatever's happening. <laughs> but um, you have that grounding element, mm-hmm, that family yeah, relationship yeah. or something. Yeah. And I think it's like figuring out how to balance the, the strangeness and the things that people can like put their own emotional weight and, and relate to sort of find their way in that story Mm -hmm. we're going to take another song break Mm -hmm. um, and when we come back we will continue our conversation with Abby May Otis on the Living Writers Show Simone, Jimmy Jones, Missy Elliott, music leader, my relatives never forget my Andre, Poppy, Mikasa, Sukasa, baby, I made an entree, maybe I make your mom's play, maybe we not gonna sleep tonight, in the night you and I laugh about how you Gemini, already fried the chicken, but leftovers was my inner thought, nah, I'm lying, I'm just playing, you can read this book with me, I'm trying to reimagine abracadabra for poverty, like poof, I made it disappear, poof, I made of happiness, everything is everything, but I still haven't paid my rent, ugly is ugly, so Molly makes me joyful now when i get down i'm already up molly the water i keep the drink in the cup my druggy is druggy we just some kids out of luck Ooh, they ain't trying to see me shine my shine the bullet on my time my time fuck it i'll live forever now they ain't trying to see me shine shine bullet on my time time but fuck it i'll live forever they ain't trying to see us shine shine bullet on our time time but fuck it we'll live forever this is the living writer show with uh Abby May Otis is our guest. Um, I'm Amanda Yuli, your host. And um, I think the next best thing that we should do is have Abby uh, read a little bit. Um, do you want to tell us what, you, what you've selected? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to read the opening section from Moon Kids, which is the oh, story that we were talking about a moment ago. That's perfect. Um, and I, I think this is maybe one of the more like easily categorizable like science fiction stories, although all of the science fiction elements are 
sort of in the periphery and giving uh-huh. rise to the world. The story is kind of just this this group of teenagers who are friends um, navigating teenage life in this beach town and what yes. it means with a lot of science fictional premises like outside of them and below the surface and um, but but some of that gets introduced here so I'll Good. read that please do this is moon kids Suzo says moon kids find their way to Sandpoint because they're drawn to the tides they like to be around something else that's ruled by the pull of the moon Colleen thought she came to Sandpoint because Krabby Abbey's was hiring and Softshell didn't seem like such a bad thing to eat for lunch every day, but she's willing to concede that maybe Suzo has a point. At any rate, there are a lot of moon kids in town, which mostly Colleen likes, although every so often it makes her crazy. She's been here a year. She likes that Suzo lets her wait tables instead of keeping her kitchen side. Plenty of other restaurants keep Moon Kids' kitchen side on account of the odd asshole customer who makes a snide comment about Moonies putting him off his food. Suzo's into jumping on stuff like that. This is an equal opportunity place of employment, he'll say. And at this point, I'd like you to—I'd like to give you equal opportunity to get the fuck out of my dining room. <laughs> We're gonna have to. Uh, make sure we sanitize a few words uh, for the rest of the reading, if you don't mind. Oh, sorry. I was realizing I hadn't we, we, asked yeah, you about Yeah, live that. radio. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. Um, but please go on. No denying it, though. Moon kids. They're kind of stubby. On account of them growing up on the moon. Your muscles learn differently in moon gravity. Your bones form light like a bird's. Used to not be even possible to make the transition, you'd touch down into earth pull and collapse like fast-melting candles. Too many fractures for all the king's horses and all the king's men. Way, way too many for earth doctors to deal with. Earth doctors are known for not caring. Now, though, they've got ways around it. They've got operations and stuff. Every moon kid's got incision scars in the same places. Colleen likes that her friend Tesla works for Suzo, too. Tesla got promoted to assistant manager a couple weeks ago because she's so bomb with the business side of things. Encouragement is good for Tesla. The people side she has more trouble with. The restaurant is hopping today. Some obscure holiday, some excuse for money bags to wallow in a day at the shore. Big, well-fed families sit around the table and get a kick out of <clears throat> and snork down crab bisque and get a total kick out of summoning waiter oh waiter the air droops with fish smells and the sweaty fervor of over tipping everyone likes reliving the golden consumer boom once in a while colleen sloops between tables like a freaking old school roller skatress shrimp poppers here cod basket there she can recommend the most expensive thing on the menu in a way that doesn't feel sleazy she takes orders without a pad the food is grody but the money bags pay for service for the anachronistic privilege of getting served and the tips are spinning out like cotton candy and colleen's feeling on top of the world it's been a year since she last stumbled and spilled someone's calamari a year since she overthought the business of walking in earth pull and smashed down and had to have two people haul her upright. A year since anyone watched her flailing and tithered and edged away. 
Colleen, you'd look at her today and you'd say, now there's a moon girl who's coping. Mostly you'd be right. Tesla isn't doing as well. The customer rush today it means big tips, but also big noise, and they've got the sous chef out sick and 15 other things, and all Tesla wants is to get the purchase order in, but instead she's smudging the e-paper with her elbows, biting eight of her fingernails at once. She starts to twitch. She picks her lips until they bleed, and then people ogle the chick with blood down her mouth, and she picks more frantically, and a feedback loop gears up. Stop, Tesla, sweetheart. Hush. Moon girl par excellence. Bones too frail for all the muscle. Mind too frail for all the grief. So I can stop there or I can do another section. Perfect. So maybe we'll do another section in a bit. I think it's so um, beautiful and perfect to have you read some of the stories um, on the air so people can hear um, and sort of understand the worlds that you're creating. Mm -hmm. um, The beach town and the seafood, the fried seafood and all. (laughs) Um, so this is, you said this is one of the first stories that you wrote that appears in the collection. Mm-hmm. You wrote it when you were a student? Yes, I wrote it with a student. I actually wrote it when I was at, yeah, the first draft was when I was, when I was at the Clarion Writers Workshop in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there in 2010. Um, and yeah, a, a bunch of those came out of that. That's a, that a six week summer science fiction fantasy workshop. Where okay. You, you're living in a house with 20 other science fiction writers for six weeks and you're writing a story every week. Um, and it was, it was very, very intense work environment. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and also like fantastically productive and you have a, you have a different author come coming in as a teacher every week. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, And so that, how does that compare? I'd love to ask you more about kind of your process and how you write. I'm sure that normally you're not writing like one story a week boom, boom, boom like that. Um, but how do stories come together? And then when you're ready to write one, what does that look like for you? Are you like a right in the midst of chaos person or do you need silence? And maybe I like being in coffee shops. I like being around people. Yeah. Um, a lot of writers do. It's like such a solitary thing, but I hear a lot of people say they like to write with a, that's such a relief to me because I feel like the image of being solitary and silent Mm-hmm. in silence and like having your desk set up the right yes. way and having everything sort of a picturesque and arranged. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I maybe just don't have the patience for that or, mm-hmm. or I'm not that organized. Um, but I tend to, I think I, I work better when I'm around other people, mm-hmm. not necessarily people who are trying to talk to me, but other, well, sure. I feel like, <laughs> like I, I can't, I can't go out with friends and work. Yeah. Um, but but if it's people who are around but I don't have to talk to, I still feel somehow accountable to mm-hmm. them and to the place a little bit more. <laughs> the than, chatter and the yeah the of a yeah. Then I then I do in my house where I just mm-hmm. eat snacks all the time. <laughs> um, and and then I, when in, when in the process do you show your work to someone else? Do you like to to have conversations about it as it's developing with, with a trusted no. person or two, or are you super private and quiet about it until it's in a f- more final form? I don't, I don't feel super private, but I, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of when it feels ready to mm-hmm. be shown to other people. Um, cause there's a, I think there's a lot of work that I am doing beforehand, um, to, 
like just just answer all the questions that I have for myself in it, and, mm-hmm. and like. And you know, first that. drafts are very, very messy, right? Yeah. And then there are certain things that I just I know that I want to change or, mm-hmm. or um, intensify or pare back, and but I feel like there's usually it gets to a pretty clear place where I've done all of that, and then I want someone to see it or I want someone else's opinion, and that's not when it's like totally finished and perfect. Um, that seems like the most a, terrifying time to show something to somebody. Cause when, if you feel like you're completely sold on exactly how it ought to be yeah, and then you show it to yeah. somebody, it's like, uh, that's harder. What about with your students? So you teach at Oberlin, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, and t- tell me what, uh, what advice you have for them and tell me, um, or I should say advice for them and advice for all emerging writers or newer writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how you balance that, how you work on your own projects and also keep all of their work that, that that's always seemed impossible to me it as, is a, impossible. as a writer i don't balance teaches. it i okay. don't work on my own <laughs> i haven't in the last year i've worked on right? this on, on this book that's coming out i've done uh-huh. i've been doing like edits for that yeah. and like revising work um and i was doing my first year of teaching and finding my way through that mm-hmm. and yeah, and pretty much wasn't working. <laughs> I think the best teachers of writing are really pouring all of that energy into how their students are mm-hmm. developing their drafts well, and, and I also, cultivating that. I feel like I, I went through some time kind of starting right after the election in 2016 where I, I just didn't want to be writing fiction anymore. And I was mm-hmm. doing a lot of political organizing um, and, and there were just things that felt like more urgent and immediate in like uh helping people figure out livable lives and like teaching giving things to my community yeah and and so then and that that was like two years ago and then this past year i started teaching um which is very different um but i, th- I think it forced me to come back to writing and to think about like if this if this is the thing that I'm teaching people and I'm telling them that it's important or that they have to make it important or mm-hmm. find out why it's then important you have to themselves, to do that then too. I have to do that also. Yeah, and I have to, I have to like believe what I'm saying, um, uh-huh. and it it made me want to work uh, more than I've felt that in a while. Uh-huh. So that that was really nice. Um, I also didn't have any time to work, but that was fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and I I think I I was thinking and talking about. Uh, process and revising that a thing I've noticed with my students um, working in like a workshop model Mm -hmm. and when you are a college student and you have five million things going on um, that people are people are writing things last minute and they're like they're writing something like this and thinking like this has to be good enough that I can turn it into workshop mm-hmm. and it feels finished. And so people sort of produce first drafts that are like sealed up enough that they're presentable to someone else. Um, but, and then they would have a really hard time going back and like breaking those open and revising mm-hmm. them again. And right, that's what I was saying before. Right, like you get yeah. to that point where yeah. it's too late. And to if ask you if it. you like put it in that stage too early, then you're not you're not done actually. Mm-hmm. Or and you but you don't know how to go back. And yeah, there's a point of no return. 
Yeah. yeah and, and so and are you so teaching your students to avoid that? Trying to. So we spend a lot of time on revision and... Uh-huh. Um, cause students would say to me, like, I, I really, I'm just done after a first draft. Like I, I write it and if it's not good enough, then, uh-huh. then it's trash and I throw it away. Right. And it's so like, common. Even like I have worked with younger students in the eight two six model. Mm-hmm, we were talking about mm-hmm, this before mm-hmm. and, um, newer writers, younger writers, folks just starting out are often of that mindset of like, well, I've written it. Right. Um. <laughs> well, and I, I worked with middle and high schoolers for a long time before I started oh, you did? teaching. In what in capacity? Um, I was running a, or, or like along with, with two other people, was running a literary arts nonprofit in D.C. called the D.C. Creative Writing Workshop, oh, wow. where we would, I think, do like similar work to uh-huh. A26. Um, and uh, we were mostly based in one middle school in Southeast D.C., and we ran an after-school program and like went in and collaborated with teachers and classes and did poetry workshops and um, put on a, a play every year and took them on a lot of field trips. Um, and and that was always like often kids who were not even in the room because they really identified with writing. They wanted a place to go after school mm-hmm. and we had snacks. And, <laughs> um, and so the deal was if you got a snack, then you had to write us a poem. Um, that's you, not a deal. That's a bribe. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. 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 Um, and if you didn't write a poem, then you had to write a poem at home before mm-hmm. you came back okay. again. Um, Fair enough. That seems pretty forgiving. And yeah. And, and so it was a lot of kids like, you know, you have to deal with like middle school attention spans. And so mm-hmm. if what what they could write in 10 minutes was what they were going to write. And that was That's it. That. Um, yeah. But often that was like still way more attention and thought than they were used to putting into things. And it would like, you would see it like slowly. Open it's the beginning up. of something for oh, a young yeah. writer. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of before our next song break, I wanted to ask you about the length of things you referenced before how much you enjoy the short story, mm-hmm. um, length and you know, that your attention span is suitable for that length of, of story. Have you ever considered, or are you, are you thinking toward or working toward novel length? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a novel. I was working, uh, or I, I had started the novel as as my thesis in grad school, uh-huh. and I'm, I'm still still have like most of it in in the complete first very first draft form, and I'm mm-hmm. like slowly going back over it, and that's been a really exciting process because novels are so much more forgiving, and mm-hmm. and I I really like. I get so much joy out of reading things that do like very extensive world building and just let me like disappear into them. And so it's, it's pleasurable in a really different way to work on creating. That's that. exciting to yeah, hear because yeah, I feel I like, like the subject matter of your work feels to me really apt for the length of the stories that you're writing. So it's fascinating to think about how that could be kind of spooled out into a novel length mm-hmm. piece. We'll look forward to to seeing it hopefully sometime yeah soon. i hope so this is the living writer show we're speaking to abby may otis who is author of alien virus love disaster um and we're gonna hear one more song um before uh we come back and talk some more
Thanks for joining us, Abby May Otis. Uh, we're talking science fiction and your stories and your new book, Alien Virus Love Disaster. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, this is your first book, and I wanted to ask you about your publisher and sort of how you came to the point of having these beautiful and strange stories um, in your head, and now they are in my hand and many others' hands. Mm-hmm. How did that publishing process work for you? Um, the publisher is Small Beer Press, which is run by Kelly Link, who's also a speculative strange fiction writer Mm -hmm. um and her husband gavin grant um and i i think initially i I met kelly when she came to austin where i was in school to give a reading um and i have i've loved her work so much for a long time and so that was just Mm -hmm. exciting to to get to hear her and um have a conversation with her and i asked her if i could send some of the this manuscript to her um and she said yes so i did via snail mail which was filled awesome i like snail mail for the ritualistic feel of it that it still has um and then about a year and a half went by um and in the meantime i got an agent um who is? Can I, should I talk more about? Sure. Yeah, like, I, I think um, it's Christina I mean, Moore from from Wiley. Um, oh, who, who I know is, Christina Moore. You know Christina Moore? I do. Oh, she's wonderful. <laughs> oh, she is wonderful. Um, That's yeah, terrific. And she, so she, Christina Moore represented your book. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she also came through Missioner. Um, mm-hmm. One of, one of the amazing resources that grad school gives you access to is is agents people coming through who are like very generous with their time and like yeah. specifically looking um for for new people and for emerging mm-hmm. people um and i had a really fun conversation with her and she was just just like felt very excited about what i was doing without any pressure to like do a specific thing mm-hmm. and and i've talked to other agents who were like you need to wait until you have a novel manuscript. Like no one wants to buy a story collection, mm-hmm. especially from no, from when you haven't published anything, no one knows who you are. And so we'll, we'll hold on to that and we'll wait. Um, and I really felt like, but, Oh, I, sorry. No, I was yeah. just going to say small beer press is seemingly such a perfect. They match. are. Yeah. I mean, talk are. about their work a little bit too, mm-hmm. if you don't mind, just, Oh uh, yeah. Um, how it fits in with yours. And, and so I, I think small beers, started um or maybe they're already going but some of the first work that they put out were were kelly's own books that that Mm -hmm. were like very genre non-conforming um Mm -hmm. and and that that traditional publishers weren't weren't as into and so she they created a home for them and she made that possible and then has made it possible for so many other writers doing i think that kind of border crossing genre bending work 
Um, it's pretty important because publishing takes so many different forms and there's, um, you know, the major publishers, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, work in a, a very regimented and a very different way than would probably suit. Yeah. And uh, I, Kelly's books are, I think it's, yours. it's particularly rare to have a press that's so committed to science fiction, speculative fiction, weird, yeah. like, like, like they have a very clear focus and when you like look at small beer books you kind of know that both like the the content that they're interested in and also that they're like very carefully curated and so it's been exciting for me like since I've been affiliated with them to discover the other authors who I'm like in a family with now mm -hmm. um, and you know their audience is going to be excited about and receptive yeah, to your yeah. work and I think that's that's how I've made a lot of connections just in the the months leading up to this and, and this book coming out is because people know small beer and they trust them. Mm -hmm. And so they are generous to me because of that. Um, yeah, that's terrific. We promised that we would talk about genre and sci-fi versus uh, yeah. speculative. <laughs> I need someone to explain speculative fiction to me because I keep misunderstanding it. So you're here, you're live on the air. Please help me. I think of understand. speculative fiction as a broader term than uh -huh. science fiction, um, which is literally speculating and yeah. asking asking a question. What mm -hmm. if this were so? Um, and science fiction, I think traditionally, I mean, like labels are like boxes and you can put whatever you want in the boxes, but sort of like the political conversation we had earlier, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, but people going to the science fiction box, I think are traditionally looking for more, uh, technologically focused speculation, mm -hmm. um, have a certain set of, of tropes of space mm -hmm. travel and planets and aliens. Um, and speculative fiction feels a little bit larger and more flexible and forgiving that, that you can be asking what if about almost anything. And it doesn't necessarily have to be plausible or possible, mm -hmm. um, but is, is in some way non-realist or diverges from the world that we inhabit here. Um, and how do those things kind of, um, how do they compare with play with, uh, literary fiction? Like how, how do you see those things as different or, or are they ever all the same? Well, I feel like we're in a moment right now when almost every literary writer I can think of seems to be writing a weird speculative book now. <laughs> really? Um, and my last question yeah. for you, we're nearly out of time. My last question is a reading list. Like I, I would love to have you tell oh us what you're reading and who you recommend, but go on with your answer and then maybe you can transition into what you're reading. Um, the reading list is the thing that I should have prepared because every time someone asks me this, my brain is like, oh, I've never read a book yeah. before. I'm sorry. Um, let me it's think. It's a common response. A All you really need to do is like, think of if you have a book in your bag, like that's interesting to me. I bought a book at $2 radio headquarters last night called The Only Ones, which, um, and I'm very embarrassed because I'm forgetting the author's name now, but was, uh, uh, presented to me as um, if, if you're into The Handmaid's Tale, you'll be into this okay. book. And I think it's a dystopian world in which a woman has the genetics to survive a changed planet. And she's then being asked to uh, bear children to mm -hmm. survive in this okay, new world. Okay, this sounds Handmaid's Tale. -ish. Yeah, and, and so yeah. thinking about 
what what motherhood means and like connections between parents and children um and i just read the first few pages and it was it was lovely i feel like every time i see the two dollar radio list i'm i want things Mm -hmm. off that list so Mm -hmm. lucky you that you were there last night and you got to get a book there it was a great place yeah yeah um, but you were starting to answer about kind of genre and literary fiction. Oh, and whether, genre and literary fiction. Li- whether literary fiction and science fiction are ever the same thing or whether yeah. they're kind of these separate I think buckets. so all the time. Um, and I, I think historically science fiction was such a marginalized genre. And so there were there's a lot of commercial stuff and money to be made in it. But there are also so many small magazines supporting people doing all kinds of weird testing out mm-hmm. new things. Um, and so I think there was a lot a lot of literary experimentation happening there that moved into the mainstream. Um, and I also think there's more and more literary people now who are feeling like the, the tropes of the world we live in are not adequate to evoke the experiences that we're having or like <laughs> to help people make sense of, of the time that we're mm-hmm. in. Um, and so... People like, I don't know, Kelly Link and George Saunders and Karen Joy Fowler and, um, see I'm blanking on authors, um, but, but that yeah. there's more, there's more and more, uh, Claire Watkins, Goldfame Citrus, and yes. like more and more like sort of mainstream people who are writing mm-hmm. dystopian or post-apocalyptic or, uh, just fiction with, with future settings. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like the boundaries are getting blurred so much and and now the the new thing is less about like can you combine these two things but like given this broad set of tools that everyone has access to like how do you do something that's that's your continually own exciting that yeah that, and yeah. that is your own and not trying to fit into like uh an, an expected use of those tools yeah um, Abby May Otis, thank you for joining us today. Thank it's you so much for having a me. A joy to spend this time talking about your book. Uh, tell us the name of the book again. It is Alien Virus Love Disaster. And um, you are appearing at Literati Bookstore tonight at 7. Mm-hmm. It's August 16th. And I think we're going to close out the hour with um, the last song that you chose for us. And we will say farewell for now. Come join us again sometime soon. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.
Dr. Funkenstein Clinton. And whenever I'm in Ann Arbor, I check out WCBN FM. They do the dog. WCBN FM and Arbor. That is right. You are listening to WCBN FM and Arbor. And it is now time to move your ass. We're going to start with a stretching warm up, guys. Get some stretches in. Let's start with your legs. We're going to keep it chill because we're listening to some Aretha Franklin right now. We're paying tribute to the Queen of Soul. And we're going to stretch our souls to our toes, to our head, to our fingertips. So just spread those legs, shoulder width apart. And go ahead and start to bend forward at the hips. Take a deep breath in as you do so. Stretch those hammies from sitting on your ASS too much. You know you do. Put the beer down. Put the roast beef sandwich down. Get out of that chair. And stretch, okay? Because we're going to get this workout going. All right, you're down there. How far did you get? Did you get to your toes? You probably didn't because you don't stretch enough. So come back up. Take another deep breath. All right, you're back up. We're going to do this again until you get it right, okay? So take a deep breath in. And now exhale and start to fold over at the hips. Keep your head looking forward so don't look down 